you that I went to the uh, men's retreat the last couple of days, and uh, it was absolutely wonderful. Like, we just had a great time. And the, uh, the best thing about it were the conversations, you know, just being able to sit down with people and just talk. Uh, you know, I, there was one fellow, uh, particularly, he and I went for a long walk yesterday afternoon, and, you know, off through the aspens, and the leaves were crunching underneath our feet, and the birds were singing, and the deer were prancing around, and it was... <laughs> It was just, it was just such a beautiful, it was just such a beautiful afternoon. Like it was gorgeous out there. And, and then, you know, when we talked about profound things, it wasn't uh, as though we were just talking about the weather. We talked about neat stuff, you know, profound things about having to do with our lives and where we were at. It was just a wonderful experience. And some of those kind of conversations happen in an environment like that that don't happen any other time. So it's uh, just wonderful. For those of you who didn't make it, shame on you. You totally blew it. But uh, for those of us who went, we were blessed. It was great. Uh, this, this portion of Scripture is one of the most controversial portions of Scripture that there is. Not so much for us, but for our interaction with the world. Whenever you start talking about God being the creator of the universe, the people in the world who hear that, who don't understand God and they're not into Jesus and they just don't get it, they think to themselves, what a bunch of trash. They just don't get it. And they hear about how God called light into being, and they think, no, 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 no. Or they hear about God creating the world in six days, and they think, well, what about all that scientific evidence that says that it took billions of years for the world to be created? And they have great questions about that. Fortunately, today, we're going to have all the answers. So that's one of the cool things, you know, about being the preacher is that you can say that I have all the answers and you all just have to sit there and be quiet and listen. (laughs) It's only afterwards when you go to lunch that you have me for supper (laughs) and uh, and totally take apart everything I've said, which I understand. I'll probably have some of that happen at my own table today. (laughs) I want to make three big points about the creation story today. And and I want to say that I think we come to the text with all the wrong questions. Like we come asking those kinds of questions about give me a description, God, of exactly how you did this. And we look for these scientific kinds of answers because that's what we're kind of programmed by our society to ask about. And I think those are entirely the wrong questions. We want to see a record of creation that we can compare to science which I think is not at all why God wrote the book of Genesis and certainly not the first 11 chapters. Sometimes I think we do that out of fear that maybe our faith won't measure up. What if the world is asking me questions that I can't answer? What if my faith doesn't look all that good in comparison to some PhD at the university of whatever who's got a great answer for how the world is created? That bothers me. It kind of scares me a bit. And so we tend to look for these kinds of answers in the book of Genesis because if I can just find those answers there, then I can feel better about who I am and about my faith. And so I think fear sometimes drives us to do something which is actually very difficult to do. And that is established from the first chapter of Genesis something about the scientific uh, order of things in terms of God's creation. It's just not that kind 
of literature. It's not that kind of book. Look at, for example, at verse 3 in chapter 1. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now that sounds to me like God spoke into existence light. And I would like to see you try and derive some kind of scientific description that is going to to fit together this notion of God speaking into existence light before, for example, and we get this question from scientists all the time, before there were sun, moon, and stars. Like that doesn't come until day four. So how is it that God speaks into existence light when there aren't a sun and there aren't a moon and there aren't a stars to give it the light? Where does the light come from? And, and we like to say, well, the light comes from God, of course. And I get that. I, I think that's a, in, there's a sense in which that's a very reasonable answer, and God's certainly capable of being the source of light. There's no doubt about that. But what do we do about this sense of he's spoken into existence? If he is light, well, then he doesn't speak it into existence. He is it. So what does it mean that God spoke into existence light? I think it means something different than what we tend to think about. What about this phrase in verse 4, that he separates light from darkness? What kind of scientific explanation are we going to come up with that somehow fits together with the separation of light from darkness? That's not a statement about science. That's a statement about just simply a reality. Where there is light, darkness is dispelled. But it's not an attempt to get at a scientific explanation. Verse 6 says that God spoke into existence an expanse. And the expanse is called heaven. Which, again, I think is a, a term, an expression to describe what God has done here that just doesn't fit with any kind of scientific explanation. The next verse, though, is even more difficult. Verse 7 says, He separated waters above from waters below. Whoa! Are you telling me that somewhere out there beyond our skies, beyond this expanding universe that we have, there's an ocean? There's water out there somewhere? And what about the notion that the water is underneath? Underneath what? Where is it underneath? And do we have water way above? And we got water way below, and then somewhere in the midst of that is a universe with our world in the middle of it. I think that's a a strange way of thinking of things. It doesn't fit at all with scientific explanation. Or verse 9, he gathered the waters together and dry land appeared. What waters? Like I thought that he separated the waters so there was waters way out there and waters way down there and there's some kind of expanse in between. But now we're seeing that there is water here too? And that he gathers some of the waters together and dry land appears? Very difficult to do in terms of explaining that in conjunction with some kind of scientific explanation. In fact, I would say that these words spoke into existence, separated waters or light from darkness, gathering waters together. They are not at all conducive to scientific explanation. They simply don't fit. And this isn't the place to look, I don't think, for any kind of scientific explanation for what we're talking about. Instead, this is a spiritual account of reality. It's not a scientific explanation. It's not a scientific explanation of creation. And when we think 
And I, again, I think we're driven so often by the world, driven to this out of fear. I've got to somehow mesh this with my scientific understanding. Otherwise, I look bad. My God looks bad. We're driven to try and do that. And we therefore, I think, treat the Bible story, the biblical story of creation, like some kind of scientific account when that's not at all what it is. And so what do we do? Well, we try, for example, to deny what scientists say about the world being billions of years old. We read the creation story and we say he did it in six days, didn't happen all that long ago, didn't take billions of years to do it. And so we try and deny what science says about how old the world is. Or sometimes we try and mesh the six 24-hour days that we have with some kind of extended creation of the world. And so, yes, it took billions of years, and each of these days, these six 24-hour days, they all fit with some kind of long period of time. Again, it's all an attempt to try and fit somehow the biblical picture into a scientific perspective. Or we're trying to see how each day fits with a geological or biological era. Or the whole history of biology. And, and some people try and say, well, evolution is true. <clears throat> We've got a long evolutionary process. But, but the biblical account somehow meshes with that. And we see through these six days, this long story of God eventually creating uh, our world. Well, all of that, I would say, is absolutely unnecessary. And I would say that it actually misses entirely the point of what Genesis 1 is all about. And again, driven by fear in order for us to somehow give an explanation to scientists or to the world about who God is and about how, how all of this works. And so the fact is, is, if I ask the question, how long did God take in creating the world? When I look at Genesis chapter 1, it doesn't say. It doesn't tell me. I don't think Genesis 1 answers the question of how long it took God to create the world. Did it take a long time? Did it take a short time? I don't know. Because I don't think that's what it was designed to do was to give me that kind of answer. What does it mean that he spoke light into existence? I don't know. I don't know what that means. I don't know how he did it. Genesis 1, to me instead of being like a scientific account, is a lot more like an impressionistic painting. Do you know what an impressionistic painting is? Can you imagine one in your mind? I think of a Monet. I can't remember. There's one famous Monet. One of you art students would know this. And it's got a bunch of flowers in a field. And there's a hillside. And it looks, as you stand back from it, beautiful. Oh, it's just a beautiful picture of this flowers on a field. It's gorgeous. But if you get close to this Monet, instead of seeing this beauty, what you see are a bunch of blotches of paint on a canvas. And that's all they are, just blotches. There are no pretty strokes. There's no bringing together of the colors and some beautiful uh, running together of those colors. Instead, it's just blotches. And my impression is that that's kind of what God is giving us in Genesis chapter 1, is an impressionistic painting of his creation. Not with all kinds of specific detail that we could carefully analyze, but instead this beautiful general view of what it looks like for God to create. So there's no exacting details there. There is simply 
beauty. And I would say that the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, is a lot more like poetry than it is like science. If we read a science book, we miss beauty, I think. There's nothing beautiful about a science book. If you read Genesis chapter 1, you're tempted, I think, to miss the beauty if you look at it like a scientific textbook because that's not what it is. And so I would say that originally it spoke a powerful message about God to Israel who lived in an age with many gods. There were all kinds of gods there that the Israelites had to deal with. And what this book does in the very beginning is it says, no, it wasn't the many gods. It wasn't the gods of the Canaanites who created the world. Instead, it was Yahweh who spoke these things into existence. And this most powerful message is for us today the same message. We live in a world where there are many gods. And I want to know in my life what's real, what is true, what is ultimately true. And Genesis 1, in an impressionistic painting, comes shouting back to me, Yahweh did this. God did this. And I'm not going to give you all the details right now. But you need to stake your life on this truth. That God did this. And so if I had to talk about what Genesis 1 is about. And as we're trying to see God in the story of creation. I would say first. That Genesis 1 is written to tell us about God, about his character, his nature, his love. It's not a scientific account of the universe's beginning. And so there's an artfulness here in Genesis 1 and a building kind of crescendo as God details to us his creation. In fact, I would say it's like this. Genesis 1 is like a symphony. And it keeps coming back to to certain themes as it communicates through the symphonic music who God is and what he's done. And so, like, you just think of a a symphony, something like this. Dun-dun-dun-dun. And then the music continues. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Do you get the point? There is repeatedly the same few notes. And it actually, it plays very few notes, but as it comes together, it it forms something beautiful and something grand and symphonic. And there's this beautiful story that's told in the midst of the symphonic music. Dun, 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 dun. And so we get to the point where we've heard that so many times in our lives that we, we know the rest of it. How many of you don't know when I go, dun, 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 how many of you don't know what's coming next? You all know because you've heard it so many times. And so the text says things like, and God said, let there be light. 
And God said, let there be morning and evening. And God said, let there be dry land appear as the waters are separated and it comes together. God said, let there be vegetation, let it flourish and grow in the earth. And God said, let there be a sun, moon and stars. God said, let there be fish that teem in the seas, that birds fly in the heavens and let there be animals appear and let them live on the earth and propagate it. And ultimately, let there be human beings. And so there is this refrain that goes through the story and let there be. And then there are words like, and God said this was good. 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 And then it builds. And it builds and it builds and it builds. You get over to verse 26 and verse 27. And as he creates, no longer is he just creating animals. Suddenly he creates something in his image. And by the end, he gets to the end of the story and he says, and this is very good. And the whole thing builds into a crescendo, just like a symphony, where human beings finally have a place in God's creation that is grand and beautiful and wonderful. And so it starts to become clear that not only Is God's story written in Genesis 1 to tell us something about God and his nature and his love? But Genesis 1 is written to tell us something about ourselves. Who are we in light of God? What does he think of us? And the story communicates beautifully in a way that is so much different than a scientific account. Scientists would say that, what is it, we're like 98% water or something or... You know the figures and I don't. There's some enzymes and there's some proteins and there's some H2O and all these things come together and and then suddenly God vivifies it, which simply means he makes it all come to life. But it is so much different than just these chemical elements that come together. And a scientist can analyze my body, but he cannot analyze me. He can't analyze my mind. He can take my brain and pick it to pieces and evaluate all the cells that are there. But there's a huge difference between a brain sitting on a table for analyzation and a human mind and a human soul and love. They are not the same thing. And the story of Genesis 1 communicates just how beautiful it is that God has created us. We are very good, he says at the end. Loved very much. Made in his image. And in fact, all of the stuff that is made before us in the story is made for us. It's so clear that we're the crescendo of God's story. Well, last week I mentioned that before creation, God was in relationship with himself. That he was father and son and spirit. And what was God doing as father, son, and spirit before he created anything? And I said again, the world wonders, but I have the answer. He was being himself. He was loving in himself as three And so there was, from the beginning of eternity, God as not just creator eventually, 
but as one who's in relation. And there's a sense in which God himself is relationship, where Father, Son, and Spirit come together in this loving, mutual relationship, and that's who God is. He's the relating one. And so Genesis 1 tells that story of God as well. This story is about a God who longs to be in relationship. He is community. And he longs for community. And so he creates with intentionality, with a goal in mind. And do you know what God's goal is? We are. We're his goal. Like it's so clear at the end of Genesis that we're the goal. God created things for us. God wants to be in relationship with us. He wants us to be united with him, in love with him. And he wants it more than anything because that's who he is. And so right at the very core of his being and in his eternity, God is relations. He's relationality. And the biblical story in Genesis chapter 1 is nothing more than the story of God creating us and seeking us for relationship. And it's beautiful. Genesis 1 is written to tell us something about God's relation to us. And so it's not a scientific account. I don't think that God is that interested in us knowing how it is that he created the universe. If he was, he could have told us. You know, I don't, I don't have big problems, actually, when someone says to me, well, you know, the world was created through a big bang. That actually doesn't bother me at all. How do I know God didn't use a big bang? God could use the biggest of bangs if he wanted in order to create our world. I just don't know how he did it. He doesn't say. What Genesis 1 makes clear to me is that he did it. And that when he did it, he did it in a beautiful way. And that you and I are right at the center of that creation with all his intentionality going toward loving you and loving me. Well, if he's created us for relationships like that, if we're created in his image so that we're relational, then we need to get about the task, I think, of being relational, of having relationships. Some of you are introverts, and I get that. Boy, it's hard. It's hard for you to share with other people, hard to get out of yourself. You know, you'd rather just be by yourself. Peter shared with us recently about how, that's, how he is, and I get that. I'm not like that. I, I love being in relationships. I love being relational. I don't know if that's extrovert or not, but at least it's relational, and I love being relational. I think that God created me for that. And so even if we're introverts or extroverts, whatever, if God is relational, then he calls us to relationships. He wants us to be in relation with others. One of the things that we've been trying to focus on in our church in the last three years of this whole notion, we've talked about this many times, our life groups, getting people in groups, having people share, get to know one another. We can't get to know one another on Sunday morning very well, and so we go into life groups once a week and say, who are you? Let me know you. Who are you before God? What is God doing in your life? Those things can happen in a group that they can't happen in this group. And so I want to say again, we want to emphasize being in life groups if for no other reason than because God himself is relational. 
and he calls us to be in relationships. Think about that. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you and praise you for the privilege of being your children. God, you created us in such a beautiful way. And Genesis 1 depicts that so beautifully. Help us, Lord, to to see the beauty of your creation in that story. But more than that, help us see you and your desire to relate to us. Help us not only to love you, God, but to relate to each other and love one another. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.